Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. See, Indonesia is not of the scale of China and India. And I think some people argue that India and China are so vast, you could almost consider <laughs> North China, South China, East China, and different parts of the world. But because Indonesia normally gets lumped into ASEAN, right? Mm. Uh, that people think about, well, I don't want single country risk with a country of this size. And so that's where the differentiation came out. But nonetheless, this is our thesis. And we believe that the last 10 years have proven out that thesis. So we continue to double into that thesis. Again, we've invested in companies that are regional that come into Indonesia. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and Indonesia is the new China. How do we understand the Indonesia startup and venture capital ecosystem? With me today, Adrian Lee, founder and managing partner of AC Ventures to help decipher this, and at the same time, provide a broader perspective to the Southeast Asian market. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bernard. Appreciate you having me here. And the first things first, I saw the announcement yesterday and congratulations to AC Ventures that have just raised your fifth fund at US 210 mil. And you have a pretty impressive portfolio. You have customs and did and Coinworks, right? Yes, no, it was, those are in some of our earlier funds, but you know, this new fund continues to be playing on our strengths and experience, which is a focus on Indonesia, but also investing in the very best of companies across Southeast Asia that have potential in Indonesia as well. Yes, that is what we're going to talk about today. Before we get to the main story of the day, I want to first start off with your origin story. How did you start your career? So I graduated from Cambridge with a degree in economics. And actually, you know, through a prior internship, I started my career with JP Morgan in corporate finance M&A. I happened to be in the financial institutions group. So I got an early exposure to how banks, asset managers, and finance institutions work. But after several years there, I really felt that it wasn't my calling. Um, I'd always been entrepreneurial in nature, having tried at starting a couple of companies while at university, which see, failed miserably, uh, but uh, decided that going to do an MBA for a career switch would be the right move. Actually, one of the really helpful things in applying for MBA was taking some time to think about what I enjoyed uh, doing, where my strengths lay, and what I wanted to do in the future. And in particular, the essay that I had written for my admissions process to Stanford GSB. And what through that retros introspection, what I'd figured was that I wanted to, you know, to me be an entrepreneur, but also in the future to be an enabler and empower of entrepreneurs. And that meant investing uh, in companies at an early stage, preferably in technology. I'd been, I'd had an early exposure as an early adopter in internet technology. Uh, because those were businesses I believed could have huge impact, especially in emerging markets. So that was back in 20, two, 
2003 that I'd uh, written admissions wow. essay. So anyway, I went, fortunately, I, I was admitted to Stanford GSB, so a class of, I did initially think that I'd be a consultant prior to being an entrepreneur. That was the roadmap, be a consultant, get some experience how to build a or run a business, start a business, and then ultimately start a fund. I did not get an internship or any job with a consulting company. And actually, while I was at Stanford, I met my co-founder of my first company on campus. He was an undergrad. And you know, we were both fascinated about the potential of internet technologies to create a more immersive and adaptive learning experience for languages. So I spent more or less my whole of my second year working with classmates, working with this undergrad on an idea that would eventually become the blueprint for our first company. That company was called Adapted. Um, what we did was we married a uh, virtual call center model, which was popular in the US at that time, helping people who work from home to provide voice services online and use that type of infrastructure, that network to give live on demand, scalable one-on-one -on -one English lessons to students in China. We had recognized that while English was widely taught in China, many students couldn't speak fluently. And this hindered them when it came to their examinations, particularly around spoken examinations for IELTS and sometimes TOEFL. Hmm. So this was in 2006. So this is when the first iPhone was being released. So it is quite yep. early on. And, you know, it's not like everyone had smartphones. So when we started that first business, we literally had people set up in internet cafes with fixed line phones and a virtual screen uh, in order to communicate with the teachers. But you know, we raised some angel financing, some venture financing. We built the company over the next five years, ultimately sold the company to a private equity-backed business in the US. Uh, and that was my first experience as, and uh, a real experience as an entrepreneur, particularly in tech. Mm. So moving on from there, I spent about six months with that acquiring uh, company before I was contacted by the Rocket Internet, or at least the people who are building Groupon in China. They were looking for experienced technology operators to join them. I'd met with them, but felt that at that stage, you know, Groupon China had grown already in just a few months to thousand plus people. It wasn't the right place I wanted to spend my time. But in that process, was then introduced to Oliver Samwa and also a separate project that they had started up called Iridzu, mm. which is accommodations marketplace in China. So I, I worked with them over the course of almost uh, 12 months as CEO building the business. We were the very first company. And actually, we had received by that 12 month an acquisition offer for that business. Unfortunately, it did not uh, go through for various reasons. But in that space of time, I'd actually started traveling to Southeast Asia. And so this wow. was 2011. I'd met a lady from Indonesia, Surabaya, who is now my wife. Uh -huh. and, you know, and in that, you know, in visiting her, I realized Southeast Asia, which is where my heritage is. My mother's from Malaysia and my, my father's from Hong Kong. And I'd spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia growing up. There was incredible potential, particularly in Indonesia, given its size and scale and strong demographic fundamentals. Uh, and that many of the digital companies, business models that I had seen in China had yet to really gain scale and start. So I remember going to the very first Tech in Asia. I think it was one of the first Tech in Asia mm. conferences in 2011 and in Jakarta uh, and meeting with you know, the founders of uh, Tokopedia, Traveloka and thinking, wow, these businesses are just getting started. What a remarkable opportunity to take what I've seen and learned and 
hopefully be part of this growing digital ecosystem. So I moved um, in 2012 from China to Southeast Asia, initially with Rocket Internet. Uh, but it was, wasn't long before uh, I, I played a part in uh, co-founding a couple of businesses. But by 2014, I uh, had focused then on building uh, my first fund known as the Convergence Ventures Fund, which you know, from that date to today is about 10 years now. So it's a decade in this, in this business. Yeah. I was ensuing years. You know, we, mm-hmm. That first one was 30 million. We deployed in a number of companies, which you had mentioned. We were early investors in Zendit and Carsim, some great fintech companies as well in Indonesia, Julo, Coinworks, amongst uh, many others. And you know, by 2018, I was thinking, were there ways that we could scale this business faster? And you know, when it comes, even when we evaluate companies, it really comes down to team and the partnership on how you grow any business. And fortunately, in coming back to in coming to Indonesia, I'd gotten in touch with a classmate, Pandu, who, who had overlapped with me at, at Stanford. And he had started a fund with his partner, Michael. And through a number of conversations, as well as doing some deals together in 2019, we decided that it would be in our mutual best interest to combine. And hence, mm-hmm. their firm, you know, my firm, Convergence, came together to form AC Ventures. Ah, okay. 2019. That, that's how AC Ventures came about because I hear the merger story through Helen, who I have on the show before, but now I get the why the A and the C put together into one there. Yes. Then, and so that, that is the entire story, how AC Ventures have started. So one question I probably ask, since you have a career journey of being both an entrepreneur and now a venture capitalist, what are the lessons that you can share with my audience? So I think... When as I reflect on you know the last you know, decade of investing, I think a number of things you know, you'll come to mind. I think the top level when we're asked this question in general, right? There are three key things that we're looking at when we evaluate any company. One is the founding team, right? Mm. Second is you know the business model and the market and its total potential. And then the third, obviously, is the traction and the trajectory of the business. You know what helps validate. You know, the, this is obviously the right team and also the right business for us to be investing in. And is it the right stage? After all that, then comes the valuation and other aspects of an actual deal. I would say that there are a couple of areas which I think are very key, particularly when it comes down to a venture business. I think it's easy to say that you know certain market can be very big, but needing to drill down really into the accessible market and the market readiness, and that sometimes is to do with timing as well, is really important. Because in the end of the day, if you're in a small market, no matter how well you do, it'll be still a small market. Mm. And the times where companies have broken out is because they've actually created their own market, expanded their market sphere. But it's hard to underwrite for that at the beginning. Right? Fortunately, being in a catch-up market like Indonesia, we're not normally inventing new markets. right? But we can learn from and evaluate what have been the experiences of companies in more mature markets, be it China or India or elsewhere, and try and apply that time warp investing thesis to a market like Indonesia. Um, That's one, right? Really understand the market and the timing. And I think the second always comes down to the team, right? Mm -hmm. I think that many investors often say that the founders, the team is really important, is most important. But I think for us, it's really critical to go down one level deeper. So what does that mean, right? One of those aspects we talk about is 
founder market fit, right? Why is this the right team and the founding team to be executing this product at this time? That goes to the crux of what's going to drive them when things are really tough, like at times like this, right? They could, the best founders probably could be doing many things, right? They've got great backgrounds. Uh, what's going to make them stick and figure uh, things out? But again, I think it also goes down to another level, um, which is also the characters of these founding teams, how they complement each other. Many of the companies in Southeast Asia are not what you would say pure product companies. Say it's not like a Google or Facebook. You build a fantastic product, right? And the the, the compelling um, value of that product draws users into it, right? And maybe you're even in the US managing just large teams of engineers, right? And you're an engineer yourself, you're a coder. It seems that many of the businesses in Southeast Asia require much larger operational teams. And so you know, it tends to be that founders who have work experience, who have the experience of leadership, have the experience of hiring, recruiting, managing, and communicating with bigger teams, tend to have a great ability to execute and operate these businesses out here. And so when we take a meeting with a founder, of course, we may have questions about business, you know, the market much of which we may have done prior research anyway, right? And we're just trying to validate and cross-reference. But then it really goes to trying to evaluate the founder and the team, right? Much like a headhunter is trying to evaluate the CEO of, you know, when they're trying to place a business, right? They're trying to see mm. if they have the skill sets, right? To be the right leader and entrepreneur to drive this business. And that's, you know, one of the things I think is really important that sometimes is overlooked. Interesting lessons. And so the way how you were thinking about in terms of how you index the traits when you come to finding founders and early startup teams on deciding whether how we should invest in them. So I want to go straight into the subject, which I want to talk about the AC Ventures and also the venture capital outlook in Indonesia. So I think probably given that uh, it was a year ago that I interviewed Helen on the show. So I wanted to ask you, can you give a very short overview of AC Venture, I think specifically the investment thesis and how do you all think about the Indonesian market? Right. So you know, right from the beginning, AC Ventures was always indexed towards the Indonesian market, right? When you look at the demographics of Indonesia, 280 million people, young and fast growing population, almost 50% coming into the kind of the mass affluent class and consuming class, the fundamentals there are extremely strong. Right. And if we try and forecast where we'll be in, say, 10 years, we're expecting that annual growth of 5%, GDP per capita may triple to almost $12,000 per capita. And that's a really meaningful size economy. And zooming all the way to 2050, Indonesia could be the fourth largest economy in the world. So obviously, there is some huge potential in this market of Indonesia. And so we believe that if you're going to address Southeast Asia at one point with a winning company, you start in the biggest market. This past decade, that thesis, that hypothesis has helped prove itself out because Indonesia has been the market that's produced the most, let's say, billion dollar businesses or very large businesses. And businesses that are outside naturally have to have a huge presence in Indonesia as well. Being a catch-up market, we're not looking to invest in the innovation frontier, right? You're not going to find... Mm. Uh, the next newest technology being built out of Indonesia. However, you will find that there are business segments where enabling technologies used by businesses in many different industries can create better business overall. That is cheaper to run, more efficient to scale, and hopefully more profitable too. And these can beat out incumbents and become the winners of 
you know, the next generation. Okay. Hmm. In the past 10 years, we could very much look at all these internet and mobile type of companies, which we've seen emerge in China and, and India, and apply this type of playbook, investing in early stage. Um, you, many of the companies that we have backed to date, uh, you could find some analogy to them in more developed markets. For example, Zenit, payments business, you know, proven around the world. Now you've got something like Stripe, and it's similar to that in Southeast mm. Asia. And whether you're talking about Julo as being a consumer lending company, of course, there are examples of consumer lending companies that have gone to um, massive scale in more developed markets, Latin America, for example, as well. Mm. But I would say that window to follow that playbook is shrinking, right? Because many of the things that have you know, been backed in more developed markets and been applied to these catch-up markets have been done, right? And so they're going to be fewer. Um, that said, when we take off the kind of the pure tech news, we're not backing just a marketplace, mm. really looking under the hood and seeing what are ways that technology can make existing businesses as well as new businesses much better. And those are some, I think, some of the opportunities where as investors in market, where we can, you know, find companies from bottom uh, up research, we can generate some really asymmetric returns. So I think it's a little bit like the China thesis 20 years ago, they have now developed their own set of innovations markets. I think the same is going with India and then Southeast Asia, only predominantly Indonesia on that. So my other question would be, what's a typical day for you as a VC? Well, I think as a, you know, as a, as a GP of the fund, my day can indeed be quite varied. But if we high level split out the typical responsibilities of a, a GP, it would go into kind of four components, right? Uh, of course, one, we're doing investments, right? And so we're, you know, we might be meeting with prospective companies, looking at leads, looking at research, generating investment ideas. When we're doing it with the team, might be attending conferences. But basically, we need to expand our worldview to understand where are there opportunities to in invest? I think second, obviously, we have a portfolio. I sit on several boards accessible to my uh, portfolio founders at any time. And you know we have regular set times to catch up and talk, even outside of the board meetings, really trying to help support the business. Of course, we also have our investors. VCs are fundraising, obviously, on cycles, but also LPs, limited partners, investors in VCs, are one of our core clients, you know, founders and also the investors in the funds. So going to opportunity, going to conferences where we can meet new LPs, catching up with our existing LPs, some of them invest as well so that they can have opportunities to invest directly. So showing them opportunities, there is a whole bucket of work that, that goes on there. Mm. And last but not least, again, as a GP, there is the management of the firm. You know, the VC itself is a firm. We have grown now from 10 people to over 40 people in three different in three different offices across Southeast Asia. You know, primarily headquartered in Jakarta, but managing the team, working with the team, building the business, making sure that AC is well aligned in terms of our own OKRs and goals for each year. That's the fourth part. So in the earlier part of the conversation, you talk about the startup team, the timing and the market as one of those things that you index for. If I were to reverse the question and ask you, what are the red flags that would deter you from investing in a company? It's a it's a great question. You know, we when we meet with founders and you're trying to assess character, right? We want to, you know, we want and, and bearing in mind the very best founders, if you look at great companies, 
everyone comes with their different uh, kind of advantages and flaws, right? So it's hard to say that this is a cast iron way. And if, if you did, then venture probably would be easy because everyone would just follow a, a simple checklist, right? And humans, even then, are you know, obviously the most complex, you know, one of the most complex people to understand, right? So you know, when it comes to red flags, you know, we really look for people who are open-minded for learning, right? You know, this idea of strong convictions loosely held comes to mind, where as a founder, of course, you're normally going up against many naysayers, right? People who don't believe it will work or you know, don't believe that you're the right team or you have the right traction or so on and so forth, right? And so there is value in obstinance and determination for sure, but you need to be a sponge. You need to be able to absorb information, interpret it and apply it because you know, if something is not going right, you can't let your ego or you know, your just being st- or stubbornness get in the way from making the right decisions. So you know, we do like to see founders who are humble enough to be able to understand and take that learning in, change course and iterate and adapt where necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the red flags is that maybe an ability to take feedback, uh, an ability to learn, an ability to have that open-mindedness to take on ideas and um, incorporate them into kind of the next steps. Mm-hmm. So we met during the uh, XA Network AGM. So we have this interesting panel and there was this question that I brought up. I thought it would be interesting to ask it here. So we chatted about the startup class of 2021 versus the startup class of 2023 in Southeast Asia. I think I'm going to pose this question. What are the differences that you observe and how well do you think that these two classes will perform for the Southeast Asian VC funds in the future? So, you know, I think there are a multitude of factors that come into play here, right? Uh, I think we've seen, first of all, on a very macro scale, a correlation between times of scarcity and challenging times will breed better companies. But there are many kind of factors that all come into play here, right? I think let's first talk about you know the team and the founder. Of course, you get great teams that come out and times when you know when times are good, right? But when times are bad, it takes an additional level of filter almost a self-selection process of someone who has so much conviction either to leave a stable, well-paid job, right? Or to take that leap into going to start a business, right? So that additional filter will help support, you know, for some some good quality, really good quality teams to come out, right? You may not have as much of a funnel, right? Because it's, you know, it's a more difficult time to come out and start a company, but you'll get maybe a more select group that, that come out and build businesses. I think the second is thinking about the types of businesses, right, that are being built. So, you know, again, when times are good and money is easy, right, yes, ambitious ideas are being floated. But what we've seen in the past decade is that some highly capital intensive businesses, even some with don't have, which don't have terribly good margins, but huge market size, all get bored, right? And these are businesses that, you know, in these types of challenging times, you probably won't see. Your founders might be gravitating towards businesses that have far uh, greater margins, but also uh, lower burn as well. And that kind of comes into my next point, right? Which is the use of capital. When capital is plenty, when investors are you know are hungry and there's a lot of risk on attitude, everyone is aiming for that you know top line you know number for market share, right? And of course, when that happens and everything is grow, 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 you're hiring fast, but you're probably paying more. The market's hot, you're paying more. You're using probably capital less efficiently. And certainly when everyone is competing in that way, even your advertising to your market, your customer acquisition has all gone up, right? 
So it's going to make things a lot more expensive and less efficient. The converse is true when uh, market times are bad, right? You don't have as much of that competition. The price of talent has come down. You're being far more selective. Probably you're running the whole organization in a much leaner way. Again, that translates to you have to raise less capital. You focus on better units economics. You probably build a fundamentally stronger, stronger company as well. So, you know, for many of these reasons, I think we'll probably see a, a stronger cohort out of this. But look, you you invest in the times that you're in, right? If you sat out of the market entirely, right, in you know, in the prior years when things were very hot, did no investments, you would have missed out on some great opportunities too, True. right? So you know, you have to play the field that you're on. Mm. So one of the reasons why I definitely want to speak to you today is because while doing that panel, I did a lot of research on all three speakers. So I know that you have actually put up a report on Indonesia Venture Capital Report 2023 together with Bain and Co. There is some reset in the Indonesian venture capital industry recently and how investors are actually adjusting their strategies in terms of the current market uncertainties. So, you know, I would say that the reset has happened globally. And so, you know, it's not obviously Indonesia specific. And if you zoom into the region, actually, you know, early stage deal flow in Indonesia has held up relatively well as compared to the rest of the region. And again, I think that reflects the depth of the market as well as the breadth of opportunities that exist in the market. When it comes to how investors are adjusting their expectations, I would say I wouldn't speak for all the investors. I can just talk about how we look at this. Mm. And because each investor will look at this market in different ways and see different opportunities, and that's you know, and that's uh, that's how we generate these outsized uh, returns. You know, for us at this time, we are you know looking for businesses which fundamentally we believe have the ability, even on just one round, to uh-huh. get to sustainability. Right. Uh-huh. So that means that the company is not necessarily trying to build out just PMF. Right. Hmm. It, uh, we see at a small scale has really shown that has the types of quality cohorts at a small scale or medium scale that demonstrate that the product works. And we believe that capital now can really help them get to that next level up. So you know, now some of these companies could be bootstrapped. So indeed, we are you know, the so-called seed or first check institutional hmm. investors in this business. But typically, they're showing uh, a lot more substantial traction at the point at which uh, we are entering. You know, that has also been a consequence of our kind of growing experience and maturity in companies, right? You know, we find great businesses. We're happy to keep backing those businesses over time to seek an IPO exit or, you know, whatever liquidity event makes most sense for for the team, but not necessarily having to rely on later stage financing as well uh, as those companies grow. And we'd have the luxury to be able to do that if those companies can fundamentally show that they can be cash generative alone. Mm. So this kind of changing investor preferences, like I mean, from your perspective, right, where you say that now is actually both the product market fit together with maybe some early showing of probably good unit economics of some profitability and what the capital is used is to supercharge the company to get to scale. So how does that investor preference also would come towards maybe the way how you think about valuations? How do you think about unit economics? So valuations certainly have come down uh, a fair bit, right? Mm. But the benefit of having some traction metrics is that you have further comps by which you can evaluate those businesses and benchmark them. 
you know, you, you know, you can walk back all the way from potential exit, looking at public comps, but also at comparable companies that are private at the moment to value those businesses. Strategy perspective, I think it is a further evolution of what you know we've always said we want to do, uh, which is work deeply, build deep partnerships with the teams and founders that we are working alongside. You know, have more meaningful ownership in those companies again, so that we are true partners to those businesses, and that's you know because. As a partnership, most of the part GPs have been operators, entrepreneurs themselves, right? They really understand what's going on with entrepreneurs and how they're building businesses. It's why we invested so much in building a large value creation team on the ground in Indonesia. Uh, it is one of our largest teams uh, there with uh, 10 people and led by a, a former entrepreneur. And so having seen the process of building the company from an entrepreneur's shoes, we felt that we could build the specialized vertical functions that could help a founder in their building process of a company. So you know, what it means is that we have you know, these fewer companies with deeper relationships that we hope to get to larger outcomes. One thing that came out, I think it was also reflected in the Google's uh, Economy C report as well, is that the Indonesia VC deal value actually remained pretty stable despite all the global challenges and the macroeconomics is actually uh, showing that the whole Southeast Asia is growing. There are two parts that I wanted to ask. How do we think now about the Indonesian market? What are the key challenges that's actually faced by startup, even though the market is relatively resilient? How, what kind of challenges do they really facing and does it maybe people do not spend more and how are they adapting also to the changing the startups actually within Indonesia adapting to that changing investment landscape as well yeah I think that's a, a very good question to dive into so you know first of all I'd say that in recognition that it is a much tougher um, fundraising environment depending on the company or rather you know actually all all companies they want to seek to extend runway in this environment, it's you know not about growth at all costs. It's about making sure that you can improve the business's unit economics. Um, it's not possible that all companies would get to cash flow positive, but you can certainly pare down uh, the excesses in your team, and maybe you can you know extend runway by fifty percent or double, sometimes even triple, right? Depending on you know how you know on on you know how much bloat there might exist in the company, right? So cutting down costs extending runway and zeroing in on unit economics certainly is a number has been number one in, in many founders minds and been implemented in a fair number of companies that's also a reflection in knowing that there you know the economy goes in cycles right you know mm. that wasn't the first let's say hype cycle that tech has gone through it won't be the last hype cycle that tech has gone through and this is not the first kind of nadir in the cycle that we will encounter right so, you know, if you can extend your runway, at least get to a point where risk on sentiment is, you know, is a bit more prevalent, then, you know, they could raise money again uh, at a later time. So, you know, I think this is a great time for founders uh, to really zero, not be looking outwards and say, how am I doing my competition? Like how much market share am I getting? But zero inwards, right? Be introspective on their businesses. Am I right-sized for where my business is at the moment? It's fundamentally you know, each of my business lines working, should I just be focusing on this one product, right? Because that's mm. the one that works and the other ones were actually add-ons as we try to pursue growth, right? And I think the best teams will be ones that will use this period to shape up, sharpen up their businesses and may 
those with a capital advantage because some companies actually end up raising a lot of money in 2021 and they sit on you know, enormous sums of money could use this time as a way to consolidate their position as a leader in their industry and even pick up some companies at distressed prices too. Mm. That also comes to my next question, right? Which are the sectors that are actually going to be witnessing this growth in venture capital investments? And I think also what kind of trends are actually driving these investments? Because one key part of your portfolio is like financial tech or what people call fintech. So what other sectors are there interesting? I saw a lot of agriculture tech recently has also managed to raise a lot of funds. Many of the more obvious fintech sectors have been done in Indonesia, right? Mm. And the market is still huge because there's still a, you know, a, a, a relatively low penetration rate um, of financial products into the broader population in Indonesia. And there's still a quite substantial and sizable uh, market of uh, unbanked population in Indonesia too. So you know, at least the kind of obvious businesses to back, be it consumer lending, MSE lending, those types of marketplaces, neobanks, like many of these have been done in some shape or form, but the market remains quite big. You know, the next stage that came after that was what you know we had loosely called embedded finance. So financial plays that lay as the revenue model for businesses that may have been SaaS or in product in nature, something like that was through earned wage access. That was one type of company that did that. You know, a, another would be through, say, for example, software for, again, MSMEs that help them be more productive, that help them with understanding their business, but in the end, obtain data that helps underwrite and therefore is a embedded finance or embedded mm-hmm. fintech. Uh, so I think there continue to be some opportunities in here. And I think new ones will arise as the market as a whole becomes more mature and more sophisticated in, um, you know, in financial services. So if you look at India, when they implemented seamless transactions through that gave an opportunity for new payments companies to come out, right? And I think there will be similar opportunities in Indonesia as more and more of the market gets connected financially. Mm. In fact, there's a recent landmark where I believe digital payments have now surpassed cash payments in Indonesia. And that's right. 50% water share <laughs> has been reached. It will accelerate, right? Um, <laughs> But you bring up the other sector, which is generally climate. You know, Indonesia is, I think, the four, uh, Southeast Asia is the fourth largest energy consumer in the world. And Indonesia is, you know, a huge carbon market. Uh, and so, you know, given, you know, suddenly how obvious it is the effects of climate change are in our environment, you know, that we see in everyday lives, there are opportunities in and around major sectors of climate, be it uh, energy transition or renewable energies, circular economy, and so on. Opportunities to back companies in this space too. Mm. And that's interesting because as the economy gets more sophisticated, so is the way how the regulatory environment is, right? So how do you think about like in terms of the Indonesia government's regulatory practice? I think specifically, I I just want to look at say like digital infrastructure, consumer uh, protection laws. How would that also influence the way the venture capital landscape is going to work? So I think that the current administration uh, has been pretty supportive of technology. And I think that recognition stems from the fact that technology has a wealth dispersion effect. So whether you're looking at Gojek uh, or Tokopedia, both of which essentially enabled many of the segments of society to be able to tap into opportunities to sell or provide a service to the broader population, or you, know, you look at 
companies such as fintech companies, which are enabling previously overlooked segments of society to access capital to you know for productive purposes. Many forms of technology actually help lift the middle and lower classes into a into into a a better social economic status, right? So I think the administration recognizes that, therefore have been generally supported. Look at how they've developed the fintech regulations in conjunction with uh, the Association of Fintech, incorporating all the stakeholders, both consumers and also companies, together with the regulators, to come up with policies that encourage in a safe way the development of these uh, fintech businesses, right? I think this will continue. You know, we've got the elections this year and time will, I guess, show us you know, who will be the incoming president for Indonesia. But I think there is, be because Jokwi's administration has done so much for the economy, I think you know, his popularity rating is amongst the highest ever. There's a very good chance that the types of policies we've seen in the past decade will continue and will actually be able to be implemented even better because of the people's, the, because people want to have continuity in seeing all the great things that have happened. So I think one interesting thing is about the question of exits, right? I think there's a lot of uh, IPOs picking up in the recent years. I think Gojek actually IPO'd in the Indonesia Stock Exchange. One question I do have, and this also relates to how venture capital success and startups ecosystem success is going to be. How is the exit landscape is going to evolve in the Indonesia startup? ecosystem. And I guess, what do you think would be the potential implications for future investments? I think we've already seen the Gojek public listing, I think Tokopedia as well, I guess, as in they, they, got, they merged together and then they got into public listing. And now you have this sort of second gen startups that may come out from some of these companies. Yeah. This is a really important point. And I think this is something that the market really has to prove in itself over the next 10 years that there is indeed liquidity for technology businesses uh, to emerge in uh, Indonesia or in Southeast Asia. Now, first of all, I'd say, while many people have looked at and been pessimistic due to the post-IPO performance of some of these technology companies in the Indonesia market, need to take it into context that you know these are companies that 10 years ago, people had no, no idea would ever get to any sort of listing even at a billion dollars, let alone you know, multi-billion dollars. So the very fact that they were able to get to that scale, were able to raise capital you know, at the bottom of the market, right? I think is quite a feat. And, and I don't think we should take that, I don't think we can take that away from those businesses, right? But is the IDX still a relatively speaking nascent listing destination? Yes, it is, right? It's not as developed as India, it's not as developed as you know, certainly uh, more developed markets, uh, listing destinations. It's because the retail market uh, investor base is still small, like a million or so, but it has grown, right? And continue to grow as the market becomes more sophisticated. Um, there are a growing number of institutional investors that are coming in and greater global recognition of, of IDX. And there are some structural issues, such as, I think, adjusting the free float minimums and encouraging liquidity that need to be done in order to encourage the growth and adoption of investing into the IDX. Now, having said all of that, Indonesia as an IDX listing destination was, I believe, amongst top five last year, right? Especially off the back of companies which were cash generative and in interesting areas of renewables, resources, and mining, right? Mm. 
So I think that fundamentally, if a business is healthy, is a healthy business of its own, meaning that you know it's in a growing market, it's growing fast, it's generating healthy margins, it's you know there aren't questions on whether it's going to survive or not, whether it can make money, right? Then I think companies could even today hit the Indonesian stock exchange and have a healthy listing, and that's what makes me so optimistic about this next generation of businesses because we are seeing businesses even at their you know pre-investment or even or shortly after investment demonstrating clearly that they can be cash generative and building businesses with you know quite quite high gross margins so that is on the you know ultimately we'd love to see the best businesses list right but i think the second aspect is uh, acquisitions okay southeast asia it's clear uh, and again indonesia being the largest market we believe is the pillar uh, for southeast asia is one of the most strategically important regions of the world right now especially as we consider uh, its location its geography its demographic and where it sits between the power axis of the US and China right and you know if we look at history probably you know assuming that we don't end up in any sort of military conflict there will be some there will be investment both in terms of capital and technology that flows to this region that we believe will continue to develop the market here and as uh, you know this market is so strategic what we'll see is that mature businesses be they come from north asia or they come from you know the us and other parts of the world they will come to look for interesting acquisition opportunities for this region and again if you have fundamentally better businesses which you know are profitable which are sustainable then they will only encourage more companies to be able to bid for these businesses right So for those reasons I think that the next decade will look very different in terms of how we see exits and I think that having seen what's happened in the past 10 years that helps us you know contextualize where we believe things will go into the future. If you think about the last decade is because we're living in what what now the US VC is called a zerp era which is zero interest free yes. uh, period right? So there's now a very popular term that they bundle around as such. What kind of trends would you think now would happen to say the types and the size of the deals maybe in the context of early stage versus late stage funding because you mentioned just now in order to get venture investment now is slightly different from last time you need not just to show some traction you need to show profitability and hopefully this company can scale and then subsequently maybe they might even end up listing earlier than usual like in the pre internet days i think maybe web 2.0 era as such would they see that drastically change now moving from one extreme maybe moderated a little bit because there's still some expectation that interest rates will drop in the middle of this year. So first of all I don't want to say what mm. our position is to yep. generalize for the whole venture industry. Certainly Correct. there exists there continue to be great seed funds out there that will back ideas on a back of an envelope or PowerPoint or whatever. Mm. So you know it's just you know where we believe we are best placed to start our relationship or even engage through investing in a company. We will also still meet with companies that are at a seed stage because again we want to understand the journey understand the ideas and get to know entrepreneurs early but we it may not be the point at which we start investing into the business so i think on a macro basis there seems to be some consensus that there will be some rate cuts that happen towards the latter half of the year that's been reflected in for example bond prices but that's still a far cry from coming into zero interest rates right i think when you can put capital you know in a fixed deposit and earn you know five and a bit percent 
certainly that's going to impact where people think about allocating capital. And it definitely raises the bar if you're in alternatives in private uh, as to you know, what you have to achieve in order to be a credible and um, attractive alternative uh, to that. But even if rate cuts, you know, cut you know a point or half a point or something, still, I, I think it's not going to create a massive risk on effect on investors. I think that if you go all the way up, kind of upstream from the alternatives market, so that's your PE venture, you part of where I think limited partners have constraints is that there has been a lower amount of DPIs that have been driven globally, right? Because there's just been no liquidity in public markets and acquisitions have also been slower. So if they're not seeing money come back and they've seen their public market portfolio maybe come down a bit, there's been some recovery, then that really constrains uh, some limited partners from being able to deploy, right? And then, you know, if they have limited ability to deploy and the venture investors have you know, maybe less uh, ability to raise capital, then I think overall there may be a more, continue to be a more conservative outlook as to which companies to back. We need to see, like, not just some rate cutting, we need to see some exits uh, on the horizon and in cash in people's hands, and then we're going to start seeing the cycle come back. Mm. So this is my other favorite question. What's the one thing that you know about the Indonesia venture capital landscape that very few do? The one thing that I know yeah. about Asian okay. landscape. Yeah. Or maybe even startup but, ecosystem. You know, I <laughs> I would say when I speak to regional and some of the global investors, what we always hear is that how Indonesia is so highly valued. Indonesia is so expensive. The companies there are way out of whack, right? Mm. Now, if that was the case, no one would ever make money. There wouldn't be an industry uh, over there, right? I think... Definitely, there are anecdotes and there are cases by which companies have been overvalued. And that happened the world over. But I think if you're not based in Indonesia, if you're outside and you're flying in and you naturally hear about the companies that can market themselves best and that naturally float themselves up, there are very few companies that get there. And then back at least in 2021, many investors that all looked at those companies and an auction process did drive those companies up in valuation. But that was not reflective of the market as a whole, right? Because if you're mm. in market and you're seeing opportunities every day and you know you then you obviously you you get a better understanding of what valuations were like, right? I can understand if valuations are going to be higher in Indonesia as compared, say, to the Philippines or you know, say Vietnam, some other markets in Southeast Asia. But that's also because the total market size and pie in Indonesia is also much, much bigger. Right. Mm. So you know I think I, I so I think that's that would be something you know I would I, <laughs> Because again, I simply get asked that question so many times. <laughs> like, oh, isn't everything so expensive in Indonesia? But one of the wonderful things that will come out of this growth in AI, this boom in AI, right, is that Indonesia is not going to be able to solve its engineering talent base in the near term, right? Solving anything to do with talent takes many years because you have to start with education, education reform, uh, and then all those years that students have to go through, right? But you know, with co-pilots and the ability to create code, and be like, you know, if you're an engineer and become a 10x engineer through the use of ChatGPT AIs and co-pilots, you know, that can effectively solve part of the engineering problem that Indonesia faces when it comes to building technology-enabled businesses. So I'm very hopeful that mm. you know, this is going to be something that's going to you know, allow for more companies to be able to be technology-enabled. Mm. So 
You brought up a very good point about regional VCs and global VCs flying into Indonesia. And I'm also seeing some of my Singaporean uh, VC friends are now traveling almost every week out of the region to each individual country because they need to be there, you know, to meet the startups, to do the deals as such. And this is something that I really thought about in terms of the VCs. There's always this regional and then there is this local VCs. How do you anticipate the role of a more Indonesian-centric VCs evolving? Is it going to be the growing deal share and also the shift maybe from the early stage investments moving towards the late stage? If you look at that Bain report and they segmented VCs by reality, mm. it did point out that and Indonesia-centric VCs had, you know, in kind of in general, tended to go on to raise further funds and maybe slightly larger right. funds as well, right? Yeah. Uh, I um, as a strategy, you know, this goes back to the kind of the very beginning we were talking about where we saw opportunity and we see the importance of the Indonesian market as it pertains to also the the larger ASEAN market. Being the biggest market, it means it's seen naturally going to have the most opportunities there. And so we want to continue with that. But we wouldn't say that actually every opportunity that can become regional has to start from Indonesia, right? It could start from other company, uh, other countries as well. Mm. But with our focus in Indonesia, what that means is that any company that's outside of Indonesia that wants to get to scale across the region, they will naturally want to come to Indonesia. And that focus for us makes us a natural partner because why get two regional f- firms to come into Indonesia when you get a local partner in Indonesia, right? And so, you know, we have continued to build off that that strategy. You know, it wasn't the most popular strategy. You know, certainly in the early years, there were many limited partners funds that simply said, we don't back single country funds, right? We don't back funds that have one market as a core thesis, right? Of course, you could, you know, you can change but your... That- but there is a bit of contradiction where there was this point in time where people just go to China and India with the exception of single country funds and say, oh, you know, it's one big country with one billion population. And then, and of course, following by all the next five PowerPoints about yes. the macroeconomic conditions, right? So shouldn't Indonesia be considered like that too? Well, see, Indonesia is not of the scale of China and India. And I think some people argue that India and China are so vast, you could almost consider <laughs> North China, South China, East China in different parts of the world. But because Indonesia normally gets lumped into ASEAN, right, mm. uh, then people think about, well, I don't want single country risk with a country of this size. And so that's, I think, where the differentiation came out. But nonetheless, this is our thesis. And we believe that the last 10 years have proven out that thesis. So we continue to double into that thesis. Again, we've invested in companies that are regional that come into Indonesia. Carson was one that we were a series mm. A investor done, done very well for us. And there are others in our new fund as well that follow you know similar multi-country execution strategy where Indonesia is really part of the core pillar for that growth. I, I just want to dive a little bit into this conversation. So when there's a lot of foreigners trying to go into China, it's very, very difficult. Yes. And if you look at the Chinese market, it is almost impossible for anybody to go in. Yeah, yes. I mean, maybe Uber, maybe the last one still managed to cobble 30% market share, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a very internal defense. Do you see the same type of defense happening in Indonesia? I think India has a little bit of that, but not that significant that there's still some space for an outside company out of India to enter into the Indian market, yes. right? And they also start to block the Chinese players from going in like TikTok. And I see that happen to Indonesia, but it was actually resolved by an investment. So 
Do you think that will also become more and more significant that you see the only the Indonesia market backed by the Indonesia startup founders? No, I think there are a number of reasons that I can point to to mm. suggest that Indonesia, if you could say it like this, might be more US-like, meaning that there can be foreigners that come in and build, or non-locals who come in and build great companies. If you trace back to history and you look at today, some of the very biggest conglomerates in Indonesia, they were built by immigrants. And uh, in Indonesia, you can see there have been very successful uh, businessmen who have built, and they may be Indonesian by nationality now, but they weren't originally Indonesian, right? Mm -hmm. And they came to Indonesia and they built businesses in finance, in fast uh, FMCGs, in consumer goods, in B2B, in you name it. And they come from China, they come from India, they come from Europe, right? There are, in fact, many examples of immigrants who have come to Indonesia, uh, foreigners who've come to Indonesia and subsequently built big businesses, right? You know, I think Rocket Internet, they had their biggest office in Indonesia and a number of those Rocket Internet alumni have gone on to continue to live in Indonesia and build great businesses out here. That said, I think you need to make sure that you have the right local partners, either as in team co-founders or within your team or the right backers to help navigate what is still a foreign market. Right. But I don't think Indonesia is one that if you just because you don't come from Indonesia, you should write off and say, it's like China, mm. you're trying to go to China and you're not you know, from China, trying to build a business is going to be near <laughs> impossible. Right. Indonesia, I think, is more multicultural in that and more accepting right, to people to build businesses. Mm. I have two more questions before we get to the closing. What does great look like for AC Ventures from your perspective? To be philosophical about this, right, whether we're talking about you know, rate when it comes to what we're looking for in founders or what we're looking for our team and even or looking at AC Ventures itself. I would point to cultivating character and one of, you know, open-mindedness and a, uh, you know, a, a real, really strong receptivity to learning and growing and supporting that with the determination, resilience and grit necessary to be able to do highly impactful things. So I think about that from the standpoint of AC as a culture and a team. I think about that in terms of what we look for in founders. And I think that you know by living those types of characteristics, you know, ultimately will you know, say generate not just a significant societal impact, but also significant financial return for our investors. Mm. Adrian, many thanks for the quality time you have spent with me talking about the Indonesia venture capital landscape. And of course, congratulations on the fifth fund. In closing, two quick questions. Any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Anything that's inspired me recently? Well, yeah. you know, I have actually just picked up a book that I'm listening to called Hidden Potential by Adam Grant. Ah. I've been trying to get my son, who's 10, to read it. And I think that some of the anecdotes here, some of the ways he challenges uh, and let's say popular health beliefs about you know what is important uh, in order to unlock such potential are you know, really insightful, right? Uh, and so I would encourage people to to take that book and have a read and see if there are any ways that you can apply the learnings from that. I would like to add a recommendation that I did with my kids, and they actually asked me to read a letter every night. So there was this book called The Thirty Eight Letters by John D. Rockefeller to his son. Amazing. Oh, surprisingly, my 11-year-old daughter and my oh. seven-year-old, coming to seven-year-old son, loved the stories in that book. 
Amazing. Okay, I will. Yeah. So, so maybe it's a good fun. It may be much more inspiring. Actually, surprisingly, very personal the way how Rockefeller describes his uh, entrepreneurial experience that I don't read it in a lot of his biographies. Well, you know, related to that, early on, Mm. a book which we had uh, frequent when I was in China building a company, and I was in a forum known as Mm. Entrepreneurs Organization. We often looked at this book called The Rockefeller Habits. Yes. Mastering by Vernish. That is also an incredible book, right? Because, you know, it really, uh, I mean, there are not many companies that employ these types of high frequency communication. And and when it comes down to managing teams, it's about communication. And it it seems like a hassle to have to have these daily stand-ups and so on and so forth. But it can make a real difference to how a company is run. Mm. And last question, how do my audience find you? I'm found very easily. My email is adrian at acv.vc. And you can definitely find us in all the other, from our YouTube channel, newsletter, all the way to all the podcast platforms. And definitely share us with your feedback. Adrian, once again, many thanks for coming on the show. I look forward to speak to you soon. Thanks so much, Bernard. Enjoyed it.